You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning, Mill Creek. My name is Nathan Eberlein, and I'm one of the elders here at Mill Creek, and this is my daughter, Lydia. Uh, We're going to be reading today from Luke chapters 12 and 13, and that's on page 600 in the Chairback Bibles. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take that as a gift from our church. Um, You may have noticed that we have been going through the book of Luke a little bit faster than we have uh, with some of the books uh, here. Uh, We do want to be very intentional about covering the Bible. And uh, sometimes when we have very lengthy books like Genesis, that can mean that we're only covering one to two books in a year. Um, And so with that in mind, we've been looking for some instances where we can move a little bit faster. And that also has the added benefit of giving us a bit more context about where we are and how it all fits together. So right now we're going to be going right into the middle of some of Jesus's um, teaching. And so we're going to be reading a few excerpts over the text that Jeremy will be covering in the sermon. So if you'll join me, we're going to start with Luke chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In the meantime, When so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to the disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Luke 12, 32-34 Fear not, little flock, for for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart be also. Luke 12, 35-38 Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower fell in Salem fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Thank you. Will you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, We come to you in gratitude. Uh, We thank you for your love for us, for your mercy, your care. Uh, We thank you that we have the freedom to join you and to read from your word and to be together with fellow believers. Um, Lord, let your spirit move in this place. Uh, Prepare our hearts to worship you, uh, to know you better, to be more like Jesus. Uh, Please rest upon Jeremy. Uh, Speak your truth through him. uh, Help us to learn and to go into this week uh, in praising and honoring you and all that we think, say, and do. We love you, Lord, and in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lydia and Nathan. 
so this past basketball season, uh, which has come to an end, I had the privilege of being the middle school girls Maranatha assistant coach. I got to do that, and it was wonderful. I had never done that before, and um, I suppose I should confess that when I was in high school, I actually would mock middle school girls basketball, and I would say things like, oh, look, it's a high-scoring game. It's two to four. Wow, that's wonderful. They've had 6,000 jump balls. They have more jump balls in this game than they have points in the whole season. Isn't this wonderful? I was just one of a few brothers, and I thought that was really, really funny. And God, in his sense of humor, thought, I'm going to have you be coaching that group of people someday. And, and true story, I loved it. I loved getting to coach these wonderful gals, even a few of them here right now. And here's the thing, though. I uh, never coached middle school girls before. I've coached other grades, but not middle school girls. And so I've played hoops my whole life. So I got 35, 38 years of solid basketball experience, and I know how the game works. And I understand the relationship between practice and games. And there is a relationship between how you practice and how you play. So I found myself frequently trying to figure out how do I get these gals to know that how you practice really matters in the game? Because kind of the unspoken attitude was we're going to come to practice and we're going to dance around and play the hokey pokey and, and, and I'm there just intense to the max, passionate and thinking, I'm fixing on being a Hall of Fame coach, so I'm going to need you all to go undefeated for me here, and, and we got to get, take care of business. And, and, and my agenda was a little different than the middle school girl's agenda. So there I am trying to go, look, um, thinking to myself, okay, Jeremy, how do I help these gals to know that I really can help them be better basketball players. I know what it takes to win. And, and, and if you would just dribble like this, or if you would shoot like this, no, do not shoot like that. That is not the right way to shoot. You shoot like this, or here's how you play defense, or I mean the one that I probably repeat more than anything. This is how you box out. Oh, good grief, would somebody please box out? We finally just changed it to bulldoze, because clearly the word box out meant nothing to them in their vocabulary, but bulldoze did have the right connotation. And, and I just kept thinking to myself, I want these gals to realize you, you've got to practice the fundamentals. You've got to do it. And you can't sleep on these skills, because how you practice actually changes the outcomes of game. There is a relationship. What you do right now is going to matter at the end. And so we worked on that, and, and some of them did a great job. They got it. Um, and a lot of them had a really fun time coming to practice doing something else. And that was our basketball season. And like I said, I was just so honored to, to get to coach them. The, the truth is, that so many of their attitude was actually the very same attitude I had when I was in high school. And my coach had to tell me the same thing. Like, you can't just flip a switch when it's game time and pretend like you're going to be able to do everything you need to do. And... And frankly, I don't think middle school girls or my high school team or even any of us in here um, maybe get that as much as we need to. Uh, what I mean is, Mill Creek, I think many of us Christians bring the same attitude to life that I could see as a coach 
at practice. What I mean is far too many of us don't think that the way we're living right now actually really matters at the end. I think a lot of us have a disconnect that what happens this afternoon or what happens this week really will matter on the outcome of this game we call life. And I think it's crucial for us to realize that as Christians, there are legitimate fundamentals that are supposed to form us. There are skills that we shouldn't sleep on. And if, if we want to get to the end and be successful, or, or the word that Christ uses is blessed, if we want to be blessed in the end, well, then there are things right now that we need to be prioritizing. This morning, then, in our text, Jesus is kind of like a coach, if you will, saying to those who would follow him, this is how you're supposed to live. Let these fundamentals form you. Jesus saying to the disciples, don't sleep on these skills, guys. This is how you are to play today to get the outcome in the end that you want. Our text then is divided into four fundamentals, and that's why Nathan and Lydia read four different sections, or if you have the scripture on the back, that's why we've divided it that way, because there are four fundamentals that Christ is communicating in this section of text he wants his followers to get. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd love for you to open to the scriptures. Of course, the way we do it around here, if you're new to Mill Creek, is we walk scripture by scripture through a book, and like we mentioned, we're going a little quicker through Luke, because we'd like to get through more of the Bible, no, have, have more books in our hip pocket over the long haul. But today then, these four fundamentals, let me show you the first fundamental Jesus wants his people to know. Here it is simply, be honest, not hypocritical. So open up there to Luke 12 so you can see, I didn't just make this one up, it's, it's drawn directly from the text. 12.1, Jesus is in the midst of a chaotic crowd and, and he warns the Pharisees Excuse me, he warns his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven. Now, if you make bread in here, you already understand this word picture. But for the rest of us, leaven is a raising agent that you put into bread dough, and it makes the bread rise. Yeast is like the most popular. So if you're on Family Feud and they ask you what's a popular raising agent, the answer is yeast, and there you go. You just got number one answer. Yeast turns out, you just need a little bit of yeast, and it goes through all the dough, and it'll make it raise. A little bit goes a long way, okay? Um, and what people who make bread and what they would have understood, now you do too, is it won't take much of this hypocrisy of the Pharisees to actually have a horrible influence on followers. And, and Jesus saying, this is not the way my followers are to play the game. We're not to be hypocritical. Because at the end, verse 2, this hypocrisy will be revealed. At the end, the Pharisees will be seen for what they are, so do not allow the leaven of the Pharisees to impact you. Instead, verse 4, be honest and fear God. For God's going to judge all that secret stuff. Verse 6, God cares for the birds. Verse 7, God knows the hair on your head so you can believe you're way more valuable to him than any of those things. So be honest, not 
hypocritical. And, and here's where the tension point was for these followers. These followers were going to face persecution. There, there's going to be a full court press coming against these followers. And Jesus knew that the temptation would be for them to think to themselves, when I'm put in front of some religious council and they're going to ask me if I'm actually a Jesus follower, I'm just going to be a little hypocritical. Because it won't matter much, right? I mean, it's okay just to save my own skin to say, yeah, I don't believe any of that Jesus stuff. But then later to really, really believe it. That's okay, right? And Jesus goes, no dice. That's not how it works. No, you trust me that when you're in that place of persecution, you can trust me, but don't be hypocritical. You need to be completely honest. The Pharisees, of course, they were the antithesis to this. And so Jesus is saying, speak honestly, especially when you're defending, myself, defending. when you're called to defend yourself, just speak honestly of your belief in me. Verse 10, don't permanently reject the spirit that's blasphemy, that's unforgivable. Instead, have integrity, which is the first point, the first fundamental. Have integrity and do not give in to hypocrisy. Now, in case you missed the memo, our culture is turning sharply away from Christianity, and our culture is not positive any longer. Some have argued that not only is our culture not positive, it's no longer neutral. Folks who actually know what we believe think we are damaging our culture. And so don't be surprised, friends, that this thing is going to turn up for us. And you're going to have to make a decision. When push comes to shove, are you going to stand up and say what you really believe, even when it comes at a cost? And Jesus is saying, have integrity. Application then, if you're taking notes, here it is. Repent of hypocrisy. For, for anyone here who realizes, in some situations, I pretend to be this person because it's not very cool to be a Jesus freak in, some, in front of some of my friends. They think I'm weird. So I sort of live, I sort of live this way around those people. And then, and then on Sundays, I, 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 I kind of put on this face and I use... I use those words then, and I use these words now. And, and if you're here and you're hypocrite, then you need to repent. Repent is this word that means turning 180 degrees away from sin. And if you're here thinking, oh, man, that does not feel very good that I would have to acknowledge I need to repent, just know this is the common experience for every Christian. All of us repent. In fact, one of the marks of a Christian is consistent repentance. Like if the last time you repented was 14 years ago, you've got a little more work to be doing. It's being able to have a clear conscience that says, I am totally surrendered to Christ, and I will follow whatever the coach tells me to do. I will allow those fundamentals to form me. I'm not going to sleep on these skills. Repent of hypocrisy. Now, maybe you're in here and you're thinking, you know, I'm not one of you Christians. I'm just kind of checking this thing out. But thank you for mentioning that a lot of y'all are hypocrites. Maybe you're thinking that. And you've got some experience of like, yeah, I know you kind of people. I see you getting all dressed up on Sunday, but then every other day of the week, you're just like everybody else. You do everything the world does, and then you walk around with your nose in the air. You're just a hypocrite. Maybe you've experienced somebody 
calling themselves a Christian being hypocritical to you? If that's you, I'd say, yeah, I, I bet we've done that. I know I've done that. And there's lots of times that I, that I look back and I regret, and I think, that wasn't Christian. That was, I'm, I'm a total hypocrite. And, and, and if that's you, you're this non-Christian who's kind of frustrated because, because Christians walk around like, like they're better than everybody. What I, what I just want to show you is Jesus knew that was a problem too, and Jesus is giving us a way to solve that problem. And it's by saying sorry and acknowledging it. And isn't that a beautiful gift? That even when we're guilty of hypocrisy, we actually have an opportunity to go say sorry. And, and I don't know who was a hypocrite to you, but whoever it was, I hope they'll own it someday. I hope they'll call you up and say, I was awful to you, and I shouldn't have acted that way, and I apologize. Because true repentance is beautiful and attractive. When a person really says, I was wrong and I'm sorry. For us then who are Christians, if we're here and we are hypocrites, if you're wondering why you're not seeing more fruit from discipleship, well, if you're a hypocrite, no wonder. Moms and dads, you, you, your kids are going to grow up and be, most of the time, just like you. And so if you're thinking, whoa, I don't want them to be just like me, then you need to repent of hypocrisy. Let's not pretend it's okay. And I don't care what everybody else does. Let us allow this fundamental to form us. Because what you do with this church really will matter at the end. And at the end, you do not want to be revealed to be a total hypocrite. That's fundamental number one. Move with me to fundamental number two. Here's the way we've written it. Be rich, not greedy. Be rich, not greedy. Jesus begins this second fundamental responding to somebody in the crowd. You might see that there in verse 13. I want you to decide what to do with this inheritance, Jesus. And, and Jesus takes that request and leverages it to clarify the difference between treasure on earth and treasure in heaven. In case you walked in here and you didn't know that there's two places treasure are, now you know. There's some treasure here and there is some treasure in heaven. And he tells a parable. Look at verse 16. There's this rich man who works really hard. And in the parable, he seems quite a model worker in that he's, he's investing well and he's earning lots of proceeds. And, and actually, this parable seems to paint, he, he seems very moral, except for one big problem. He doesn't recognize that his material blessing is actually from God. He's living like a practical atheist, not investing in anyone who's poor or powerless, but he's hoarding his wealth. In his paradigm, if there's only treasure on earth or treasure in heaven, he's invested all of it on earth. And Jesus calls him a fool. Do you see that? You're a fool. Because in the end, none of that money will really matter for him. So... So Jesus, verse 22, moves from the parable to speak to his disciples. You need to trust God for your provision. Trust him for your daily bread. He'll provide for you today. He'll provide for you tomorrow. Look at the birds, 24. I mean, God's caring for birds. He's going to care for you. 27, look at the lilies, 28. Look at the grass. He's taking care of that stuff. 
He's going to take care of you. Verse 31, seek God's kingdom, which is what I mean by be rich. When I say be rich, not greedy, I'm saying be rich in God. I'm not talking about the number of numbers in your bank account. Be rich in God, seek his kingdom, and all of a sudden treasure on earth need not be so powerful. There is a place where you can invest your riches and they will never be stolen. And they will never rust or corrode. Moths can't eat treasure in heaven. If you invest in the heavenly stock market, it is never going down. And it turns out wherever your treasure is, whether it's on earth or heaven, that's where your heart is too. Here then is the, here then is the question. Do you want to be greedy and covetous today? Or do you want to prioritize treasure in heaven today? Because what you do with this fundamental matters in the end. It really matters. And I don't think anybody's going to be up in heaven at judgment and go, I just gave too much money away and I should have just upgraded more stuff on earth. I think anybody's going to say that. I think all of us are going to think, man, why, didn't, why was I not more generous? Application for this second fundamental Repent of materialism. Repent of materialism. And friends, is there any place in this area that needs to hear this more than people living in Johnson County? Some of you are thinking, oh, yeah. Those Johnson County people, get them, Pastor. Get those people. I know, because I grew up in Ottawa County. And, and you people who've known Johnson County your whole life, you don't know Ottawa County because you don't care about other counties in Kansas, but we know about you. <laughs> Honest truth. There I was as a punk teenager. I made fun of girls from Johnson County. Oh, your dad bought you a BMW and pays for your way to college. I know you. And God, in his sense of humor, has me raising daughters in Johnson County, too. <laughs> Which is why when I go to Ottawa County, I wear a shirt that says, I am not giving my girls a BMW or paying for their college. Uh, real talk, Johnson County isn't the only place that's struggling from materialism. I mean, whether you're in Douglas County or Wyandotte County or you're from Ottawa County, everybody Everybody around here is the top 1% of 1%. We have so much. And fine, you may not have as many square feet as your neighbor, but all of us have so much, and we have this tendency to think, well, I have so much because I've worked so hard for it. I've earned it, which is the attitude of the fool in the text. But a question for you is, well, where did you get those skills to earn all this stuff you have? You didn't give yourself those skills. God gave you those skills.
Biblically speaking, I have been given the gift of preaching. And at judgment, if at judgment God says, hey, give me a little self-evaluation. How did you do as a Christian? And I said, oh, God, let me tell you about my gift of preaching. Oh, man, I had this gift of preaching. And, and he would go, well, time out, bro. That ain't yours. That was my gift. That was my gift I gave you. So now I don't want to hear about this gift I gave you. I know the gift I gave you. The question is, how am I stewarding the gift? Because if it, if it launched today, the Lord says, I'm taking that gift away from Jeremy. Well, then I'm done preaching. And, and, and somebody else is going to have to come up who has the gift of preaching because, because I am totally dependent on God's gift to me. That's the only reason I get to do this is he decided to give the gift. And my heart is just to try to be obedient and steward that gift. And it's the same for you. So you're not going to be able to stand up at judgment and go, well, I had this wonderful gift. I didn't. No, God gave you that. But maybe you're thinking, no, 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 bro. I, okay, fine. God gave me some gifts, but I grind to get better. And I work I work 16-hour days, and that's, that's why I've done such a good, good job with these gifts. That's why I have so much stuff. That's why my bank account's so big. Well, who gave you the ability to grind? You didn't do that either. That's a gift too. And I think it's great that you have a work ethic. And if your dad or somebody influential taught you this work ethic, I'm grateful. I think Christians ought to have the best work ethic of anybody in our culture. But even a work ethic doesn't mean you've earned it. Instead, we're to be stewards. So at judgment, we go, well, this is what you gave me, and I'm doing the best I can with your gifts to steward them for your good. And it's the same with gifts, and it's the same with money. Whatever's in your account is not your money. It's not yours. It's the Lord's. And how are you stewarding that money? Get real practical with you. If, if you're here and... And you would say, okay, yeah, I want to I follow this fundamental. I know it's going to matter at the end. Like, what do I practically do? If, if you would say, Mill Creek's my church, whether you've finished membership or not, we would love for you to finish membership. But if, if, if you're here and you go, yeah, I, I think Mill Creek's my church, but you haven't given to Mill Creek, that's a really easy next step. Or if you're thinking, yeah, well, I, I mean, I give. I give, Pastor. That's, that's great. Maybe you need to give regularly, consistently. The, the, giving regularly teaches your heart to peel your fingers off of whatever's in your account financially and be reminded, I would suggest monthly, this is all yours. It's not mine. Some of you are thinking, I do the 10% tithe, so I don't have to feel guilty about that. And um, I'd say, well, where did you get the 10% tithe again? Well, from the Old Testament. Like, that's what it says. And if you were here a couple years ago, we did a biblical theology of tithe. And turns out the Old Testament says to the Israelites, you need to give about a third. So if you're just trying to pick a number out of the air, it's actually 33% if you want to feel really good about yourself. So good luck with that. <laughs> My... Here's my heart. My heart isn't to try to twist your arm because it's not what the church wants from you. It's what I want for you to be a person who's not more worried about their money than they are the kingdom of God. 
I love the way Randy Alcorn said it in this quote. He says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And fine if you go, well, I'm going to give, but I'm not giving to you, Mill Creek, because Pastor Jeremy stepped on my toes. That's fine. Go give it away. We have so much repentive materialism. All of us are either rich or greedy, and I want you to be rich to God. Second fundamental down, this really will matter in the end. Let's go to the third. It's be prepared, not surprised. This is perhaps the beefiest part of our text, but let me walk through it with you here. Look, Jesus is hammering home this idea of you need to be prepared by talking about, in verse 35, how his servants need to be waiting on him for the master. Um, I think it was Motel 8 that had this radio commercial a while ago, you know, we'll leave the lights on for you. And that's the heart that the master has for his servants. I'm leaving, the master says, and when I get home, be ready. Be awake, be dressed, have supper. But the challenge, of course, is that when the master leaves, we don't know if he's coming back in five minutes or in like five weeks. And it's just so late, I'm tired. I mean, a quick nap isn't going to hurt anybody, right? Verse 39 and 40, Jesus explains, nobody knows when this is going to happen. And he changes word pictures to, you wouldn't leave your house if you knew a thief was coming. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. Which puts Peter in a position in verse 41 where he's asking what a lot of us are thinking. Who are you talking to again? Are you talking to Christians? Are you talking to the disciples? Are you talking to the whole crowd? Like, who are you talking to? And then Jesus answers in the text with a question as well, which is like... Why does this have to be so confusing? <laughs> but Jesus' question actually reiterates that he is talking to everybody. Jesus wants every single person to be prepared, not surprised. And he goes back to that illustration about leaving the lights on for the master. And he says there's four types of servants. There's four types of servants. One is the positive example. Three are the negative example. The positive example is verse 43, who is prepared. He's prepared, and that's what we ought to be prepared. You can look at the negative with me. The verse 45 is the worst of the negative. This servant who is unprepared is the worst in that he has taken advantage of other servants. He's eating the master's food, getting drunk on the master's drink. And when the master returns, 46, this one is getting the worst. In fact, this is some of the scariest language you find in the whole New Testament. If you didn't know that, this is scary stuff. Look what, look what Jesus says. They will be cut to pieces, put with the unfaithful. They're going to be killed and put in hell is what I think the symbolism is. This is the harshest of warnings aimed at the religious leaders who were acting this way. You know, he hadn't come back yet, so we're just going to take advantage of this situation. Jesus is saying, wrong, do not do that. Verse 47 is the second type of unprepared servant. Knew he was supposed to be prepared, but didn't leave the lights on for the master. Verse 48, the third unprepared servant who did not know he was supposed to be prepared. So instead of getting the severe beating, 
he gets a lighter beating. Which probably brings up a bunch of questions for you like, wait, are there beatings at the end of this life if I'm not prepared right? <laughs> and some of you might actually know enough about Roman Catholic doctrine to know purgatory is coming out of this place. This is where they anchor some of their doctrine of purgatory. So is that actually what Jesus is saying? No. But to the point at hand, what helped me, because there's a bunch of other questions that can all of a sudden get us into the weeds. What we see in verse 48 is a synthesis of what Jesus is trying to say. Look at it there. He says, those gifted with much, much will be required. If you've been given a lot of gifts, if you've been given a lot of resources, much will be required of you. I like the way one commentary puts it. Knowledge influences the severity of punishment. That's the principle. So without getting into the weeds of all those other questions, and, and if you want to talk to them about them, I'm happy to nerd out with you afterwards. Jesus is warning the crowd, the disciples, all of us, you need to be faithfully waiting. Stay awake. Leave the lights on for him, if you will. Because unfaithfulness will be costly. Verse 49 to 59 iterates this theme of being prepared, not surprised in three ways. Jesus says, be prepared. Not everybody in your family is going to agree with you. If you're here and there's somebody in your family who doesn't agree with you, Jesus is saying, that happens. Don't be surprised by that. And you need to interpret the weather just like you can see a storm cloud coming in. Read the signs. Jesus is coming back. And settle disputes before they get out of hand. Be prepared, not surprised. Jesus then wanting us to be ready for the second coming and the judgment that follows. Because how you live today really matters. In the end, here's the application. Repent for not taking the Lord's second coming more serious. If knowledge influences the severity of punishment, then we have no excuse. And you and I won't be able to say at judgment, but I, but I didn't know. Lord can say, baloney, you were there in the service. Krauss preached it. And I won't be able to say I didn't know. I said, no, whatever. I gave you the gift and you had to say it out loud. None of us are off the hook. But look, maybe you're here. You don't believe in Jesus. You don't consider yourself a Christian like the Bible talks about Christian. And frankly, you're finding yourself on the wrong side of all of these contrasts. You are hypocritical, not honest. You are more worried about being greedy than rich. You are surprised that Jesus is coming back. Lean in because this final fundamental Jesus gives you could change everything. It, it could turn the lights on for you. And it's the fourth fundamental Jesus wants for us. If you're taking notes, write this down. Be repenting, not perishing. Be repenting, not perishing. There in chapter 13, 1, as Lydia read earlier, there was this 
group of Galileans who were murdered by Pilate. We don't have a ton of information in the text, but history tells us Pilate had some people taken out, murdered them because as they were giving a sacrifice. And the cultural thought, what, what the newspaper would write about these things in Israelite culture 2,000 years ago was those people must have been especially evil because how else do you explain that they got murdered? And so that's what Jesus is responding to, as well as there's these 18 people who had a tower fall on them, and, and if you had been listening to the radio the next morning, the commentators would have said, well, obviously those people were wicked, wicked sinners, and that's why the tower got them. And Jesus is saying, it's not quite true. In modern vernacular, he would be saying, karma isn't a thing. Instead, Jesus says, verse 3, everyone is perishing. Everyone is going to die. So you need to repent now or else you will perish too. You'll perish eternally. Which is where this fig tree picture comes in. In the Old Testament, fig tree often represented Israel. And so a fig tree with no fruit was Israel. They're supposed to be fruitful to God, but they're not, which is why that tree is getting cut down. That's a picture of judgment. Brings us to the end of this toll. And it's a good summary of this whole section. You either repent or you will perish. Jesus trying to get his followers to understand these are the fundamentals that should be forming you. You can't sleep on these skills. Which brings us back to when I was coaching and trying to get this principle in the mind of some of these gals. And if you got it, but more often than not, how they were practicing was not translating into the games. And and to anybody who would say, no, 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 coach, once the game starts, I'll be real serious about this. I promise I won't be doing the hokey pokey in the middle of the game. I'd say, not so, man. How you practice these fundamentals really does matter in the end. And so it is in this passage. Jesus is saying this right now to us as if he's a coach. You are in the game right now. This is the game of life. And how you live today, this afternoon, like this week, it matters at the end. So let these fundamentals form you. What, what I'm trying to say, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All of us will face judgment. But let me be clear here, because this gospel connection of the coming judgment, I don't want you to get it confused that somehow I'm saying that these fundamentals will save you. Because you can practice all of these fundamentals and not be a Christian. And I'm wanting to be sure you hear clearly that at judgment, you will not be able to say, well, look, I did all of these fundamentals so well. That's why I actually ought to be saved because I've been so obedient. That's not the way the gospel works. The gospel message is very clear. We are saved 
only by faith in Christ alone. And that's justification. We've been declared righteous only because of what Jesus has done. But what Jesus is doing here is helping us understand that that it's not merely trusting in him for salvation and then you don't have to do anything else the rest of your life. I think actually this is a challenge that some gospel-centered churches can run into is we make such a big deal of justification and we should, but we never get to sanctification. And while none of us will ever earn our salvation, had Jesus truly wanted us to live however we want to live, he could have just said, Trust in me, and then do whatever you want the rest of the week. It doesn't matter. But what we're seeing here in this passage, 12, 1 to 13, 9, is how you live right now really does matter. And that's why these fundamentals are so important. Jesus actually has expectations for how those saved by faith are supposed to live. Now, we don't try to meet those expectations for our salvation, the sequence is the opposite. We want to obey Jesus because he's changed our heart. He loves us. He saved us. He's given me a new heart, and I want to live to please him. And these are the fundamentals that will get us in a posture of living for him. Here then the final application for all here who realize they are guilty, especially for those who've never committed themselves to Christ. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. In the end, we realize none of us are better than one another. In Jesus' economy, we all deserve judgment. If I got what I deserve, I would be a murdered Galilean. If you got what you deserve, a tower would fall on you. That's what we deserve. This is what separates true Christians from the rest of the world. We don't sit around thinking, I've earned salvation. God owes me. He's, I'm entitled. We, we realize, no, the, the only way I'm saved is by Christ alone. We know we need to be saved. Which is to say, if you're here and you would say, but I'm totally a Christian, and I don't need a savior. Take it from me, you're not a Christian. If you're here and you think, I'm a Christian and I didn't need a savior, you're not, you're not a Christian according to the Bible. And just like Jesus is warning his all who will listen about the second coming, I'm trying to do the same for you. Your good works, your actions, your morality cannot save you. But there is one who can. And if you call on Christ, all the ways that you've messed it all up, for all the ways you've been hypocritical, for all the ways you've been too greedy, for all the ways you've ignored the weather patterns and forgotten that the second coming is coming. For all the ways that you've been self-righteous, you can be saved. Throw yourself on your face before the king. Say, would you forgive me of my sin? What you do with this church changes everything at the end. How you live today matters at judgment.
That's the sermon in a sentence. I realize this was a really beefy sermon, but there it is succinctly for you. And I pray you will be living in light of the end. Let these fundamentals form you. Don't sleep on the skills. How you live today matters. Let's, let's ask the Spirit to do what only He can do, okay? Let's pray. And, and now, Spirit, would you empower what you require? For our good and your glory, would you give us hearts that aren't annoyed at these expectations, but actually delight to follow your instruction. And Lord, for those here who do not know you, they are not Christians, they haven't surrendered, would you give them spirit of repentance and would you save them? In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.